Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. The Viewpoint. Weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Song is on on The Viewpoint.
20 past 10, good evening South Africans. 19th of August, good evening all of you wherever you may be. Not too much left of this Women's Month and we continue to honour women in every space that we might occupy ourselves in. Siazbulela in Bogoto indeed. 19th of August 2010 is the time. Let's take a quick ad break before we are joined on the phone by Dr. Oscar van Heerden, School of International Relations, political commentator and one of the contributors to the Umkhabulo Journal published by the Khalima Mohlante Foundation. on SAFM. Certainly, Song is my here on SAFM, and we urge you to call immediately 0891104207. The Oratambo School of Leadership hosted their monthly Umkhabulo dialogue at the Constitution Hill last week, and the focus was on the burning issue of the national question who belongs? Who belongs to South Africa? Given the recent xenophobic attacks on African foreign nationals in South Africa, such dialogues are crucial for the advancement of the African continent. We're in conversation with Dr. Oscar van Heerden, who was at the dialogue, and he also contributes to Mkhabulo Journal. Mkhabulo Journals itself are political education publications of the Oortambo School of Leadership, led by former President Khalima Motlante. Not necessarily the Motlante Foundation, I beg your pardon for that. They intended, of course, to share information that is educational, as well as to lay the basis for debate. And tonight we're debating the national question. It was, of course, the theme of the Tabombeki annual lecture earlier this year in May, the 10th annual lecture, national question that got former Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Halimariam, to debate with the national question. Each journal has a theme, therefore, and the dialogues are based on either the theme or the sub-themes. And tonight's question is, of course, the national question, who belongs to South Africa? Who is South Africa? What is South Africa? Dr. Oscar van Yedin, good evening. Good evening, Songhez, and to your listeners. Let's talk, please, first about the school itself, the Oratambo School of Leadership. Let's talk about the custodian of this educational, political education in particular, former President Khalima Motlante, and why the ANC found it appropriate to name it first after Oratambo, and why President Motlante is the person to lead the school. Yeah. Look, the, the, the person who's actually the principal of the school is... Uh, a young kid out there, Dr. David Masondo. Um, as you know, Songhezo, a few national conferences ago, um, I think Mangawung in 2012, <clears throat> decided that, you know, we needed to reimagine a new cadre in the ANC. Someone that would be a spouse uh, behind the ANC has a document called to the eye of the needle, which really talks to the ideal comrade or cadre of the ANC and of the liberation movement. And so uh, the ANC felt that they had lost their way in developing such a cadre. Um, and so they asked Halema uh, Motlante to please start the process of political education. And the school, the Oartambo School, is now the culmination of that initiative. It's named after Oartambo because, uh, as your listeners might know, um, Oartambo was one of the longest-serving presidents of the ANC. Um, he had to really take care of the ANC during the dark days of the exile, after the banning of the ANC, and he really demonstrated profound leadership Yes. Uh, in an organization that found it very difficult to survive and had to establish and build itself internationally. And, of course, he had home in the underground and so on. So I really think it's, an, it's a real honor to, to name this, the political school after him. Let's talk about 
the first point you made, which in itself is a strong indication as to the the capacity, if you will, or the outlook of the movement, or if you will, the status and health of the organization itself, the eye of the needle, speaking about the ideal candidate launching this in 2012, using the then retiring deputy president of the movement, Ndati Khalima Motlante, to lead this. And he even made what was seen in ANC spaces as a valedictory speech then, something quite out of tradition, to lead this. What would have precipitated this move? Obviously, it was the first of its kind. What had happened between Pulugwane and Mangawung such that such a measure was necessary to be taken? Not necessarily between Pulugwane and Mangawung. You know, for some time now, uh, since the ANC uh, came back into the country and had to, in a way, transform itself from a liberation movement into a political party, um, I think that process, uh, the ANC had found it very difficult to make that transition. And with a political party coming into government, uh, you know, and, and uh, getting into power, having to deal with this thing called power, um, as well as having to deal with this phenomenon of the public purse and money and so forth. Basically, over time, I think ANC cadres got consumed with the fact that they needed to have all this power and, and lots of money, and it basically corrupted uh, uh, some ANC cadres uh, from national to the local level. Um, people started losing their way. They started wanting to accumulate, crashly so, in terms of material uh, goods. Uh, and so, and others decided they must take shortcuts. And, and you know the stories on Gaza. So the ANC basically started realizing that it's losing its way with its cadres within the movement at all levels of the ANC as well as of government, which in which they are the governing party. And, and uh, there was this outcry that uh, this is happening because young cadres coming into the ANC is coming into the ANC and not getting the requisite skills and training to actually be a cadre for the emancipation of uh, South Africans uh, to work towards a better life for all and not a better life for yourself. And I think that's where the emphasis came that really we need to reintroduce um, political education within the ANC so that we can shape and really train young cadres to begin to appreciate the the traditions uh, of the ANC. I'm going to read one quote which is attributed to Dade Krisani, 29 October 1992. What I fear is that the liberators emerge as elitists who drive around in Mercedes-Benzes and use the resources of this country to live in palaces and gather riches. This is 92. Five years on, I remember, and I will get you the clip if I have time, but take it as fact. In 97, when President Mandela went on a state visit to the UK, he was speaking to an audience which was South Africa inclined, saying that one of the great tragedies of this democratic dispensation is that how persons who were with him in the trenches of the struggle waging a war against the apartheid state have now themselves dug their hands deep in the pocket of state resources. This comes long before when one of these things that do the rounds in social media, as you were speaking, it took me to that, when former President Oartambo says, comrades, you might think waging a struggle is difficult, but wait until you get to power. 
and we should use this example to learn from the mistakes of the oppressor such that these mistakes cannot be repeated when we are in power, for it is very difficult. At least that's the thesis of that argument. Three prominent voices in the movement, or Tambo, Dada Nelson Mandela, Chris Hani, all forewarning what could happen, and indeed Dada Mandela speaks about what was happening as early as 97. This is hardly three years into the democracy that we now speak of. And you say public purse, to use your words earlier on, is something which precipitated, and as you said, the country knows, what has gone wrong in the movement? Well, I, 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 I hate to use cliches on the answer, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and I really think that we thought uh, of mo- most things, we thought of almost everything with regard to how we are supposed to govern this country, how are we going to improve the lives of the poorest of the poor, of the black majority within South Africa. We put the necessary legislative processes in place, a well-crafted, world-recognized constitution. Um, We've put the institutions in place. Today, still, we see the vibrancy of some of those institutions, whether it is the courts, the judiciary, whether it is the public protector, and so on. The problem, I think, is that never in our wildest imagination did we think that money was also one of those key challenges. That we come from a history of poverty, uh, that we come from a history of exclusion, and so now that we have access and we need to build a black middle class, we need to build a black bourgeoisie, industrialist, and so forth. I think we just got drunk with money. Um, and that, in, in, in not exclusively, but in the main, is what took us down this road, where today we are dealing with the State Capture Commission, uh, elements within the ruling party that almost took the country to the cleanest, um, and we just made a slight turn at the doors of being... Uh, uh, a failed state. And so I think that those are all elements that fed into why we find ourselves in this quagmire. And then to make it, to further complicate the problem, we are as a nation not seeing eye to eye on a number of elements precisely because we still want to operate in apartheid classification and silos of black African, colored, Indian, and white. Um, and hence the key question asked by this latest edition of the Kabbalah yes. of the ANC about what is happening with the national question. We're going to get to that national question, but I think it's important to establish some basic premise upon which we can then move to try and understand and identify some of the issues that the country is grappling with. And for those of you listeners at home, I beg your pardon, 891 we're in conversation with Dr. Oscar van Heerden, scholar of international relations, political commentator, and one of the contributors of Umkhabulo Journal, which is entrusted to the Khalimu Matlanti Foundation. Is that correct? Is no, actually, the... the the booklet, it's actually an ANC uh, booklet. ANC booklet. It's now now produced by the Oatambo Political School, but it's it's squarely an ANC publication. I beg your pardon. Thank you so much for that clarification. But for the listeners at home who perhaps want to contribute to the national question, Dr. Van Heerden is on the line and will be with us for another 20 minutes or so. Let's talk about the ANC's 1992 document, Ready to Govern. What did that spell out? Did it consider this? If it did, why was the ANC fast asleep in making sure it always had its proverbial finger on the pulse for this was always a threat? It's nothing new. I mean, this is what happens when power is, invite, is, 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 is something that one has. 
access to yeah. resources becomes a serious I mean it's a trapping that can be very difficult to ignore as it were no absolutely let's talk um, about I'm then ready to govern yeah no no it is in ready to govern uh, there was sober minds that tried to conceptualize how we move forward on this on this trajectory and try and move usher in a new uh, democracy and, and principles and rights and, and, and responsibilities. The, the problem is, I think, Sangeza, is that we, we understood that there was a particular level of discipline amongst comrades within the ANC, within the, the broader mass democratic movement. There was an ethos um, and an ethical uh, element that was unquestioned. Um, however, as we then got into power, I think uh, you know the lure of money and resources and, and accumulation unfortunately took over. Yes. Um, and and yes, you know the ANC goes through these phases where there are those that are trying to counter it, that are trying to say this is not the way to do things, and others, unfortunately, because. The ANC is a broad church uh, of the opinion that, uh, you know, I'm here to eat and to fill myself to the brim, and I'm not making any excuses for that. And this is the constant contestation that is happening within the ANC. Is it not perhaps necessary to recharacterize the ANC as not a broad church for, I think, part of the shortcomings and misgivings of what we now enjoy or don't enjoy is the fact that any and everybody is welcome to be a member of the ANC, hardly ever vetted and screened, if at all, and even the recommendations of the Ethics Committee mean pretty much nothing for the most part, if any. Yeah. You see, this, this has been raised previously. And uh, like Vladimir Lenin in, in Communist Russia, so too did Tarbin Beki raise it in the, uh, 1997, if I'm not mistaken, um, at the policy conference where he tried to articulate that perhaps we should consider better few but better. So not only not being a, a broad church, but actually saying perhaps the mass character of the ANC is what the problem is. Perhaps we should have a smaller number of uh, cadres within the ANC that can more succinctly work towards implementing the policies and programs of the organization. But that was shut down. Um, you know, it was shut down by, by some others. And so I understand what you're saying. It, had, it has been tried before. Another element that also was entertained in the ANC many years ago was that perhaps we should allow politics as a vocation within the organization. In other words, perhaps we should allow youngsters who come in and actually train and have an ambition of being full-time politicians, career politicians, if you like. Uh, unfortunately, that idea was shot down as well because the argument was that, you know, you need to have passion, you need to be committed, you don't need to do it for financial gain uh, and so on. And also that if perhaps we allow uh, career political careerism, then uh, we can seriously corrupt our, our young people coming into the system. So these ideas have at some point or the other find expression in the ANC but uh, you know the ANC is a democratic organization and when the majority decide, the majority decide. That's part of the problem, you know. Um, majority thinking democracy always is not always the best solution. I mean for instance you mentioned career politicians. We both know, and I think the country at large knows, there are many who are in the political space simply because 
they have got no other purchase in any other space. You take them to private sector, you tell them to be on their own, you tell them to use what skills they have to generate a profit as opposed to just sell votes. They would be wholly inept at that. So the career um, politicians are there simply because there's no other space in which, if you like, they can eke a living. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and uh, but I do also want to add that you know over the years we've had many, many uh, politicians who did not uh, was not afforded the opportunity to study and, and get university degrees and so on. Had to go into exile, join MK, go in the underground and so forth. Um, but so, have, having said that, I agree with you that uh, you do have those that their only option is to remain within the political sphere. And I suppose this is exactly what feeds the problems we have in the broader society because of, to an extent, of the ANC's inability to really define the character that it wants for itself such that it can be a relevant democratic government as opposed to a liberation movement. This, in many respects, plays itself out in the national sphere. We don't have a common identity as a people of South Africa. We are very sectoral, very provincial, very municipal in our approaches, in our thinking. And it manifests every now and then, for instance, in the xenophobic attacks, every now and then in the Mombergs of this world and the sparrows of this world, because we don't have a framework within which to express ourselves as a people speaking to, if you will, the constitution and the national flag. Yeah, and that, that those are some of the elements that really the, the national question tries to address in terms of at what point do we agree who belongs as well as at what point and what characteristics are we supposedly having to accept as indicating of what we, we as the South African nation is all about. Questions to so Dr. Oscar. Element, Fun- sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry so it's the element of race and it's the element of nation formation that is key uh, elements of, nas- of the national question. Let's talk about nation formation. I'm less inclined to go the race route because it's going to sort of become something which we probably don't anticipate. Let's talk about the national formation. What do you mean by that? And how do we get to a point whereby we have a national consensus about something? Well, yeah, it's exactly what you've been talking about in terms of your examples. I mean, what constitutes a South African nation? Um, You know, as you know, we have 11 different languages. We have various cultures uh, because of the nature and the the makeup of South African society. Um, We have apartheid classifications that seems not to be going away. Um, And these are all elements that we have to ask as to is there some uniformity that that makes us South African. Now, as you might know, Sonia, there is a question or an argument from certain quarters that says, well, we don't have to all be the same. Uh, you know, hence our South African motto, uh, unity in diversity. We come from diverse backgrounds, but we are united. The question becomes united as what? Do we have the right symbols? Do we actually all appreciate and respect the national anthem? Um, Do we pledge allegiance to our South African flag? Um, And so on and so forth. Now, the national question deals with that as well as with the the very complexity and challenges that is there post-apartheid, one of which is, as you know, 
the, the issue of apartheid spatial morphology, mm-hmm. uh, the manner in which house cities were designed and built mm-hmm. with black Africans on the periphery having to travel far distances to come into the workplace, and so on and so forth. So, and these are all slightly smaller elements, but it is the part of the, of the sum of the parts, if you understand what I mean. Yes, yes. If you want to really address the national question, we have to look at these smaller elements, which is what is actually interfering with us being a nation and, uh, as, as, as one. One would have thought, in, in response to these smaller issues that speak to the sum, if you will, for instance, affirmative action, broad-based black economic empowerment, for the purposes of addressing the structural inequality, would have been a way to establish some form of parity among the racial groups, if you will, which would then speak to the element of dignity and expression. Expression in the sense that if you can participate meaningfully in the economy, at least some of the other issues will not be as pronounced as they do become when you're not as active in the economy. So now we don't seem, even as a nation, to get consensus on that. I mean, the DA is clear they don't want that. Helen Ziller, case in point, and her argument with Linda Mazabuga not so long ago on broad-based black economic empowerment. Afri Forum and the Freedom Front want a way with um, BEE because they say it isn't working. And to their credit, to an extent, it is quite true because the face of these programs has remained the same, has made a select few within the classification extremely rich and the indicators at an economic level suggest that those in 1994 who had X now have X minus as opposed to X plus. So from an economics perspective or from an um, economic emancipation perspective, that's why you, for instance, got this land question gaining the kind of momentum and prominence that it has. It is because economically we haven't reached that national consensus. Yeah, look, I mean, the, 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 there is a ideological framework which some people ascribe to and I'm one of them that that says that in order to address the national question in other words in order to address the issue of race and the issue of whether we live in harmoniously together which implies that we all have as much as we want um, that you know we we have enough there is a class element that needs to be addressed uh, and, and it's exactly the point you are making. If there isn't economic emancipation, if people don't feel that their lot has improved economically, that they have jobs, um, that they have security of tenure in terms of uh, a, a house, yes, um, and and so on, that they can afford uh, whatever the fees are to to pay for their their school children's um, their children's school fees. Yes, if that is missing, then it is very difficult talk about the national question. You need to make sure that there is sufficient economic emancipation in order for people to feel that they are equal and that they are one. Let me ask this question, because the more you talk, the more I'm inclined to ask it. Is the, the diversity that South Africa has, for the most part, is it working for us? Is, is it really unity in diversity, something that we should be proud about? It is working for us and we should stick to it? Or should we reframe the value that our diversity has? Look, I mean, it's, it's, I mean let me answer it like this. The question usually comes up when we talk about pan-Africanism. Mm-hmm. And then people would say, well, we are so diverse. You know, um, how can we talk of a pan-African ideology? How can we identify as being one? 
when we are so different, languages, cultures, and so forth. And I think Ali Waziri, uh, uh, when we celebrated our 10th anniversary, he's no longer with us. Yes. Um, but he answered it and said, we need to embrace our differences and identify with one element, which is that we are African. Um, and how he answered that was, we, we need to enjoy the cuisine of, uh, of East Africa. We need to enjoy the color and the, the cloths and clothing from West Africa. Um, we need to enjoy the history, steep history of North Africa in terms of the pyramids and, and so much more, Alexandria, um, Mali and the likes. And then when he came to the South, he says, we need to embrace technology and science. You know, mm. um, so the point he was trying to make yes. is that we are definitely different. We have our, our differences, but we must identify that we are on the continent of Africa and that we are all African and it's, embrace those differences and make it work for us. And I think the same applies with South Africa. Dr. Oscar van Heerden, let me ask this question then. On the con- in the context of Pan-Africanism, we know what Africa did for the underground in the dark days of apartheid pre-94. And for that matter, long after that, we were in many respects aided by the greater African continent, really given expression and form, and the struggle was able to persist because of the presence, material presence as well as emotional presence of our African nations. Did the ANC drop the ball in adopting a curricular beat at school level or a national dialogue through television programs and documenting the kind of history that was before 94 on a mass distribution scale so as to inculcate that understanding in the common man and woman in South Africa that we now enjoy the constitutional pact because of the frontline states, because of what Angola was able to do for us. President Ramaphosa was now at Somafco in Tanzania because of such institutions, because of what Colonel Gaddafi was able to do for us, training our persons and giving us the kinds of resources, and even broader than Africa. Why then could that not have been a program in Ready to Govern that was distributed from an educational perspective in response to unity in diversity? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that the ANC certainly, as a party, but also as government, the governing party in government, could have done much more to inculcate a consciousness around the continent, not only from a historical point of view, as you rightfully point out, but also just embracing that we are part of Africa. Uh, I think they could have done more on that, on that, uh, in that regard. I, I do, however, want to say that, you know, understanding that we are part of the continent is really important. I mean, at the colloquium that you referred to earlier, yes. um, one of the, the respondents, uh, Eddie Maluka, Maluka uh, spoke around this issue around immigrants and so forth, and the fact that, you know, some of our immigrants from our neighboring countries, but also further north, are already in, you know, second generation. Their kids are here. Their kids are marrying South Africans, uh, and so on and so forth. And they are becoming South African. And it's an element or an, an, uh, an, an issue that is not really resonating with a lot of people. Um, because those are the realities. Uh, you know, we, 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 when we ask the question, who belongs? Yes. Eddie, was making the, Eddie was making the point that we have to also then consider 
those from other African nations that are here with us and have been for a very long time, the Zimbabweans and, and so forth, because of the crisis in that country, but also from other hotspots on, on, on the continent. And sometimes it's not about hotspots. There are those who come to South Africa, they have skills, and they want to actually just be in an environment where they can optimize uh, the selling of their labor and, and make a lot of money. So, you know, for the same reasons why some of us go to England and Australia and mm. so forth. Mm. Um, so it, it is an important issue. I think that we could do more. But I also want to say, not as a matter of excuse, but also to indicate that, you know, during colonialism and, and apartheid, yes. uh, South Africa was a very isolated country. You know, there was not a lot of movement by black Africans into the continent to really experience the the love, the care, um, and the appreciation of our fellow Africans, uh, something that other African countries have done over time. You know, you, do not, you know that Ghana got the independence in 1960 already, mm-hmm. um, and they were able to travel and interconnect uh, and so on and see the world, but more importantly, see Africa. And so South Africans are very inward-looking, um, even over the last 25 years. Oh, even over the last 25 years, you know, not that much traveling. You look at international organizations like the UN, uh, the World Bank, and many others, and there are lots of Africans from the rest of the continent in those organizations, working in those organizations. And very few, very South, few Africans. South Africans. So, and I'm, and I'm saying that not, as I say, not as an excuse, but just to illustrate that, you know, we really still need to be exposed to the continent in a big way. Sure. No, I get you. Prof, let's leave it there, please. We will have to have this conversation, especially in Heritage Month, so be on standby, please. I mean, there's so many issues, especially in the context of who belongs, that we have to unpack further. And this was the perfect premise, if you will, to get into that debate. Unfortunately, 40 minutes was never going to be enough. Can we agree now that we, you will be back in a fortnight or so to continue this discussion? Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Van Heerden. 2041, time for a quick ad break before we continue the conversation with Mama Letsejo Zulu. I choose to live life after losing Gugu. Stay tuned.